I'm Dr. Lake from Southern Adventist University. I'm a professor here in the School of Religion. And anybody had any, I don't think I've had any of you in class, have I? Okay, that's right, yes. I teach preaching, Adventist heritage, Ellen White studies. Those are my main areas, a couple of other classes, but mainly uh, Ellen White studies and preaching. And this presentation this afternoon is based on my forthcoming book, A Nation in God's Hands, The Civil War Visions of Ellen White. Ellen White had a number of significant visions about the Civil War, and that has fascinated me. And for the last three and a half years, I have been buried in the Civil War writing this book. And finally, I just finished it. It's off to the press. It will be out in the spring. So obviously, there's a lot of material. We're supposed to go for a couple of hours this afternoon. I could go for four hours straight and then more on top of that. And I assume you guys want to break. I mean, we'll go straight. I think, yeah, they told me they break about 3.15. So we'll go for about an hour and then take a 15-minute break. And if you want to hang around for more, we'll see if I catch your attention this first hour. And then I'll leave that up to you. Visions of war. Ellen White had four visions about the Civil War. Let me give them to you here. Her first vision was in January 12, 1861 at Parkville, Michigan. I will give you the background to this vision. This, was, this took place three months to the day before the Civil War began. In that vision, she described a terrible war. And her second vision was just a couple of weeks into the war after the first major battle on August 3, 1861 at Roosevelt, New York. This was an important vision because it had uh, a lot of elements about where the war was at the beginning stage, and she set forth a philosophy of the war and provided a remarkable statement about God's hand in the war that I'll focus on the latter part of this afternoon. And her third vision was January 4, 1862 at Battle Creek, Michigan. This vision is interesting because she provided a lot of insights into the war as it was taking place in its first year. And a lot of things that happened. She described uh, a lot of the, the problems the Union was facing. The Union had pro-slavery influences in the uh, Army, and she was concerned about things President Lincoln was doing, and she discussed this in this vision. These, were, uh, these three visions were published. The first three visions were published in Testimonies. Number seven, Ellen White, her testimonies that we have in the nine volumes of the testimonies, those were released originally as individual testimony. Testimony one, testimony two. Well, this uh, particular testimony, number seven, contained all three of these visions. It was later put into testimonies, volume one. And then her fourth and final vision took place on November 5, 1862 at Battle Creek, Michigan. It was entitled The Rebellion. And this was about in the middle of the Civil War. This was her last and final vision. Historians puzzle why Ellen White didn't give a vision or have a vision later in the war. Uh, that's an issue I discuss in the book that I won't get into now. But it's very interesting. This last vision dealt with, it was, I should say it was published in uh, January of 1863. And it dealt with some very interesting features such as spiritualism. She said that the Union generals, officers, were seeking spirits, seeking mediums for guidance in battles. I have an entire chapter devoted to that subject in my book. I'm not discussing that this afternoon. And also she dealt with the first draft in the United States. Uh, this took place during the Civil War. Adventists were pulling their hair out wondering, how are we going to handle this draft? We're non-combatants. We don't want to engage in this war. And Ellen White provided counsel for them. And I also have an entire chapter devoted to that subject as well in the forthcoming book. But these are her four visions. I'm going to focus this afternoon mainly on the contents of her first vision and some of the elements in her second vision. Oh, and by the way, the final vision was also put in Testimonies, Volume 1. So all of Ellen White's Civil War visions are in Testimonies, Volume 1. Let me set up the background for you. The issue that really divided the nation was slavery. Historians debate what was the real cause of the Civil War, and mainline historians today pretty much acknowledge that slavery was at the foundation of the Civil War. There were other factors involved, of course, 
economical factors, but at the heart of it was slavery. If you look at the way the North and the South developed in, from the uh, revolutionary days and the uh, establishment of America, it divided into the North and the South, and America in beginning had slaves. But the North took a different trajectory. They became more an, a, an economy based on free labor. And so they eventually did away with slavery. There were bits and pieces of it here and there. And unfortunately, the North remained racist. They always believed that blacks were inferior. And that brought on some of Ellen White's great condemnations on the North as well as the South. But they basically went a different trajectory than the South did. So the North based its economy on free labor, but the South based its economy on slave labor. The South became a, a slave uh, uh, social slave state itself. Uh, the whole focus was on slavery. It was a part of their social fabric and it became the heart of the South and the North went a different trajectory. And so the big issue in the years prior to the Civil War, really the, the about 40 years, the Civil War was building for about 40 years. You go all the way back to the Compromise of 1820. If you look at the history, the way America developed, you had Free states and slave states. When a new state would be added, the South would say, is it going to be a slave state? The North said, no, it's going to be a free state, and they would compromise. And by the time you get to 1820, you had 11 free states and 11 slave states. And that meant equal representation in the House and the Senate, see. And the South always wanted to make sure that they had equal vote, voting power. And so that was an issue of conflict. So the conflict was at the heart of the capital. And the Compromise of 1820, I won't get into all the details, but it had to do with a new state entering the Union. And the fight was, is it going to be a slave state, a free state? And they had another slave state enter. And so they had 14 states equal, half of it slave, half of it free. Well, that continued. They, they developed a Compromise of, of 1820, but the slave issue continued to fester, fester over the years. It really resurrected again in the war with Mexico, and this became the heart of what would evolve into the Civil War. The war with Mexico in the last two years of the decade of the 1840s, 46 to 48, had to do with acquiring the Western territories from Mexico. Of course, the United States won the war with Mexico, and they acquired all those Western territories that we know as California and Oregon today, but they were not states at that time. It was just all this territory that now belonged to the United States. And so the big issue was, the North said, we're going to make free states out there. The South said, we want them to be slave states. So the issue of power emerged again. And by the time you get into the decade of the 1850s, they were fighting with one another, and they wanted to, you know, slave states, free states, and then they developed or, or they, they solved things temporarily with the Compromise of 1850. Now please note, these are called compromises. The Compromise of 1820, the Compromise of 1850, the North compromised with the South in slavery. And what they did, a fight was over California. And they gave California as a free state to the North, and there were a number of actions passed, but the most significant one is the compromise to the South was tighten up the fugitive slave law. You know what the fugitive slave law was? That was marshals had a right from the South to go into the North and go after escaped slaves. Slaves had been trickling to the North over the years through the, you know what it was called? The Underground Railroad. Stops along the way where slaves could find aid and help and make it into free territory. And so, tightening up that fugitive slave law really upset northerners because part of it said that if, you, uh, if a marshal was coming from the south and he was going after a slave, it doesn't matter who you are, you're a free northern citizen and you're sitting by the wayside and the marshal comes up to you and says, you're part of my posse, help me. You were by law bound to become a part of that posse and help him track down that runaway slave and bring the slave back to the slave master in the south. And northerners were outraged at this. this. This elicited a comment from Ellen White where she said, and this is recorded in testimony, she says, we are not to obey the fugitive slave law. So it's very interesting. I'm not going to get into that. That's all in my book.
And over the 1850s, things escalated. The hostility between the North and the South became worse. And there was an interesting book that was written, the most popular book and the best-selling book in American history by a woman with the name of Harriet Beecher Stowe. She published Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was about a slave family. It was a very moving story. And it brought Northerners to tears. Southerners hated it because it, they felt it exposed their slavery and they didn't feel it was fair. And that caused the hatred to go deeper on both sides. So by the time you get to the end of the 1850s, things had escalated to the point where they were ready to fight one another. And one event happened at the end of the decade, John Brown. Anybody ever heard of John Brown in American history? He was an abolitionist. Now, I haven't said anything about abolitionists. I have an entire chapter in my book about abolitionists and where Ellen White fits with the abolitionists. But John Brown was more of the violent trend of, or, or violent section of abolitionists. He believed that the only way to do it with slavery was by bloodshed. And so he took a group of, of men and, and blacks down into to Virginia at Harper's Ferry, and he wanted to take the armory and get weapons and go deeper south and create a slave insurrection and overcome slavery that way. And he was taken prisoner by a group of Marines led by none other than Robert E. Lee, who would, of course, become the great general of the Confederacy. And uh, Brown was hung. Some of his men were killed, put in jail. He was put in jail, then he was put to death in December of uh, that uh, 1849, I believe you get my date. Anyway, it was at the end of the decade, and he was put to death. And all the North celebrated his death. They thought it was a horrible thing. And when the South saw all the North celebrating John Brown, they thought, they're all against us. They're all against us. And then the breaking point was the election. The, ele- uh, the election of 1860. I said 49, I meant 59. I believe, yeah, it was December 59 for John Brown. Uh, 1860, the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln won that election. He was a Republican. The new Republican Party was against slavery in the territories. Lincoln said, I will leave slavery alone in the South, but we will not allow any more slave states in the West. And the South took that as a threat. He said, I'm, I'm going to leave slavery alone where you guys are, but they didn't like that. They thought if he wins, that'll be the end of our way of life. And so Lincoln won. And that, many historians believe, was one of the key triggers that led to the Civil War. In the light of all that history of the Compromise of 1820, 1850, and all the events that happened, and a lot of things happened during the decade of the 1850s. Now, Seventh-day Adventist. They actually weren't Seventh-day Adventists yet. They would become Seventh-day Adventists during the war years. But the Sabbatarian Adventists, as they were known, they were very alert to everything that was going on. If you read the Review and Herald, which is online, everybody can access it. You will read articles about, against slavery. They, were, they responded to every major political event that took place during this time. So Adventists were very alert, very in tune with what was happening around them. So that's the historical context of the 40 years leading up to the war in a nutshell. I have a couple of chapters in my book that go into a lot of detail on this. Now, Lincoln was elected. South Carolina took this as an open threat to their way of life. They were the first slave state to act. And so within weeks after the election, they seceded from the Union. That's the context in which Ellen White had her first vision of the Civil War. It took place on January 12, 1861 at Parkville, Michigan, the little church in Parkville, Michigan. It was a cold, wintry morning. All the leaders of the the Seventh-day Adventists were there to dedicate this little church. And as James shared a message and others led out in the program, Ellen White got up to speak, and she went into vision. She had a vision on a number of things, but one of them was about a terrible war. And here's what she saw. There is not a person in this house who has even dreamed of the trouble that is coming upon this land. 
People are making sport of the secession of secession ordinance of South Carolina. But I have just been shown that a large number of states are going to join that state and there will be a most terrible war. In this vision, I have seen large armies of both sides gathered on the field of battle. I heard the booming of the cannon and saw the dead and dying on every hand. Now, when many people in the audience heard that, there were Republicans there. Michigan was a Republican stronghold. And the Republicans thought this foolish action of South Carolina, it's not going to become of anything. In fact, South Carolina had been fussing and complaining for years, and they had developed a deaf ear to it. And so they thought nothing would come of it. So Jay and Loughborough, who was in the audience, he wrote down in his diary what had happened, published in a book years later. He tells us that a number of the key Republican leaders shook their heads like, a terrible war, there's not going to be a terrible war. And most of the audience, it was just beyond their comprehension that there could be a terrible war between the states and, and large armies and bloodshed, booming of the cannon. Nobody believed it at the time. She went on to say, Then I saw them rushing up, engaged in hand-to-hand combat. And Loughborough, who wrote, recorded this vision, this is not in the pen of Ellen White, it's from J.N. Loughborough. I give all the background of this vision in my, in my book. He put in brackets, bayoneting one another, so the reader could understand. There was some bayoneting in the Civil War, although that didn't happen very often. Then I saw the field after battle, all covered with the dead and dying. Then I was carried to prisons and saw the suffering of those in want who were wasting away. Then I was taken to the homes of those who had lost husbands, sons, or brothers in the war. I saw their distress and anguish. Then looking slowly around the house, she said, There are those in this house who will lose sons in that war. And of course, these men shook their heads. Loughborough went back to this church a year later. He held a seminar on spiritual gifts. And by that time, the war was underway. And he talked with several men in the audience who were in tears, and they had lost sons in the war. And in my book, I, for years, we've tried to find documentation of these individuals. I've documented one family on this. I'm still working on the others. So what's interesting to students of the Civil War, January 12 was to the day, three months before the Civil War began, with the shelling in Fort Sumter on April 12. 1861. So let's look at the historical events. Those who first heard this vision, they had to be amazed and surprised as they watched events unfold quickly in the weeks following this vision. Well, South Carolina had already seceded on December 20, 1860. They considered this the breakup of the Union of the United States. See, for Americans at this point, the Union of the States was everything. And they broke that union by seceding from it. And it was a unanimous vote. There was cheering and clapping. And there were, there were fireworks displayed for the rest of the day. Everybody cheered late into the night. Looking back on that from our historical perspective, if only they knew the horror and the death that they would experience in a few short years with the war. Within weeks of Carolina's secession, six other lower south states left the Union. You had Mississippi on January 9, and Florida on January 10, and Alabama on January 11. I'm an Alabamian, a good old Alabama redneck. I grew up in Alabama, so that's my home state. If you look at the secession documents, why they seceded from the Union, and this is something I discuss in the book, because there is some debate that some historians will say that slavery was really not the main cause of the Civil War. But if you look at the secession documents, particularly Mississippi, Alabama, they all mention specifically they were seceding from the Union. States' rights, well, yes, states' rights was a part of it, but their states' rights were their rights to own slaves. And slavery, in those primary documents, they mentioned they seceded because they wanted to protect slavery. That's in the original documents, the primary sources. So you'll notice this is before January 12. Now, Ellen White may have not had information about the secession of Mississippi, Florida, Alabama. They didn't have the Internet in those days, so news didn't travel that fast. Uh, She may or may not have known about them, but she only mentioned South Carolina in her vision. And, of course, on January 12, the next day, she had her vision. So she probably wasn't aware that just in the 
couple of days prior to this vision that these other states had seceded. But she said there will be a number, a large number of states secede. So already we have four states seceding from the Union now. After the vision of January 12th, Georgia seceded on January 19, Louisiana January 26, Texas February 1. So by February 1, you had seven states that had seceded from the Union. That was a far cry from what would become the Confederacy, the full Confederacy, as you will see. So things looked pretty grim. Wow, people didn't expect this. There still wasn't a war yet, but this secession meant the Union was breaking up. And people who heard Ellen White on that day in the little Parkville, Michigan church, I'm sure they were watching these events with interest, probably as closely as Americans today are watching the election right now. What a crazy election it is. It's interesting, isn't it? And we're watching it. And that's what they were doing here to see the outcome of these things. Where is this going? They didn't know where these southern people were going. Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated on March 4. In his inauguration speech, he again promised to leave slavery alone in the South. It just would not spread into the West. And that still intensified the hostility in the South against the Northerners. They hated Northerners. And many Northerners hated the South as well. February 4 to March 11, those seven states came together and they called it a second revolution from the first revolution that created the United States. They called it a second revolution and they created the Confederacy. And they established their Confederate Constitution. Interesting story, I cover it in a little detail in my book, which I won't now. But they basically took the American original Constitution of the United States and used that as a blueprint for their Constitution. And they pretty much copied from it. But they changed a few things. There were some small changes, but heavyweight changes. One of those changes was that they made sure that slavery would never be abolished in the Confederacy. That is a big change in the Confederate Constitution and the United States Constitution. Now, the United States Constitution didn't mention slavery explicitly, but it was embedded in the background. That would not be changed until the 13th Amendment when they eradicated slavery from the Constitution. And that would only happen with a constitutional change. But the Confederate Constitution spelled slavery out explicitly. And then within weeks after this, the Confederate Vice President, Alexander Stevens, gave a famous speech in Georgia. It's called the Cornerstone Speech. He said, after the establishment of the Confederacy and its Constitution, this new uh, nation is our cornerstone is that the black man is inferior to the white man and slavery is the foundation and fabric of our nation. So you couple all that together, slavery played a major role here. And it was spelled out in the Confederate Constitution. But let me point out right now the seven-state Confederacy had no power to wage a strong war against the United States. Those seven states in the Deep South, they did not have the power or the wealth to wage a strong war. Now, there were upper slave states that had not seceded. And when the Confederacy was uh, establishing itself, Virginia and our own state, Tennessee, they had not seceded yet. They were waiting to see what was going to happen. In fact, they decided they would not secede and become a part of the Confederacy. And so the, the new Confederacy was disappointed because Virginia had all the wealth It had all the mules that you need for war. It had some of the future generals that would be major leaders in in the war. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, they all came from Virginia. And so it's like things came to a sudden halt. And so people who saw, heard Ellen White's visions probably scratched their heads. Well, how's it going to be fulfilled now? It doesn't look like there's going to be a terrible war because... Those, that confederacy right now is not strong enough to wage a terrible war against us. We could beat them easy, and that's a fact. Well, then things escalated because of federal territory in the southern states, and one of them was the fort uh, at Fort Sumter in the Bay of South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, and it escalated until the, uh, they... Anyway, I won't get into all the detail. I cover that in the book, how it led up to this. But the shelling of Fort Sumter, 
interestingly, nobody was killed. But this was the official beginning of the war when the Confederates shelled. Uh, this, of course, was in southern territory, but the Union owned the fort. They had possession of the fort. And the, southern, uh, the South Carolina wanted that fort, and so it escalated finally into the shelling of the fort. And that's when they surrendered it to the Confederacy, and that's when the war was on. But here's where things really kicked into high gear. April 15, several days after the shelling at Fort Sumter, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers. Now those upper slave states were still in the Union. So he was asking them to join the army and go against the South. But these upper slave states said, wait a minute, Virginia, Tennessee, and others, we're not going to go and fight our brothers in the South. How dare you tell us to go wage war against our brothers? And that began the second wave of secession. Let me show you how it works here. Here are the seven-state confederacy, all right? And here are the, these upper slave states here, the, the aqua-colored states. Those would never join either the confederacy or the union. They were considered the border states that Lincoln wrestled for so much during the Civil War. Won't get into that. But here's the guys with the power, particularly uh, Virginia. As I said, Virginia contained all the wealth. It had more of the mules. To wage war in the 19th century, you had to have mules to pull the artillery and so forth. And they had, as I said, all the leading generals there and all the wealth. And when they, these states finally started seceding after Lincoln's call for volunteers and they joined the Confederacy. And so you had 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Now you had an 11-state Confederacy that was powerful and could wage a terrible war against the United States. Now, for the first time, the Confederacy was a major threat to the United States. So the stage was set for a terrible war. So the North, both sides actually expected it would be a short war. The North expected especially it would be a short war. The New York Times already dogmatized after Lincoln's call for 75,000 troops. Whatever war there is may be easily... Uh, may, may easily be made a war at sea, a war of blockades, a war having for its sole object the protection of American property and preservation of American commerce. On May 4, Harper's, Ferry, Harper's Weekly, it's a very popular magazine during this era, editorially concluded that if Abraham Lincoln is equal to the position he fills, this war will be over by January 1862. So everybody expected a short war. Boy, were they in store for a surprise. There had been a few skirmishes up to this point, but when you come to July of 1861, both sides gathered together around the city of Manassas, Virginia, for a huge battle, and each side thought they would beat the other side and the war would be over. That's not what happened. This was the battle of First Bull Run. It changed everything. It was a bloody war, the bloodiest war that the United States had ever experienced. It was a major bloodletting. It shocked both the North and the South, and they realized after this battle, this is going to be a long, hard war. Now, I want to shift gears and focus on this battle because it is at this battle where Ellen White saw an angel descend and change the course of the battle. That's one of the most famous aspects of her Civil War visions is she saw an angel descend and change the outcome of a battle, and that was at the first battle of Manassas. So let's look at the vision itself. Let me give you the uh, context for it. Two days after the Battle of Bull Run or Manassas, James and Ellen White left Michigan on a tour and reached Roosevelt, New York, where in August 3 she experienced a vision. Now let me tell you, I'll get into some details of the battle in a moment, but this was a loss for the Union. So all the Union was reeling with this loss. They were embarrassed, humiliated, and all Northerners were like throwing their hands up, oh no including Adventists. You should know that uh, the, our pioneers, the Adventists, were all loyal to the North. They were against the rebellion in the South, and they wanted the North to win. So they were very in tune with this war. They didn't want to get in, engaged and fight themselves, but they wanted to support the Union war effort. And they wanted soldiers to become a part of the war effort and go defeat the South. And so, uh, in fact, I, I, in one of Ellen White's letters, James was at the dentist of that day, getting his tooth, teeth, uh, getting some tooth 
uh, getting a tooth pulled, I should say. And uh, she describes, I'm waiting for James at the, at the dentist office and I, I've been reading the war news. That was the war news about the Battle of First Bull Run that she had a vision about. So Ellen White read a lot of the news about the war. Her insights gave courage to these church members about the stability of the Union and its armies. The vision was timely because the Adventists shared quite fully in the common despair of the North, as I pointed out a moment ago. This was first printed in the Review, August 27, 1861, and later published in Testimonies, Volume 1. So we have it documented. This vision forecasted some things about the war. And it is printed in the Review and Herald, August 27. That's important because people who see, well, maybe she said these things after the events already happened. No, she said it before they happened because we have that in print in the Review and Herald. Here is the vision as she wrote it out and published it. I had a view of the late disastrous battle at Manassas, Virginia. It was most, a most exciting, most thrilling, distressing scene. The southern army had everything in their favor and were prepared for a dreadful contest. The northern army was moving on with triumph, not doubting but that they would be victorious. Many were reckless and marched forward boastingly as though victory were already theirs. As they neared the battlefield, many were almost fainting through weariness and want of refreshment. They did not expect so fierce an encounter. They rushed into battle and fought bravely and desperately. Now I have an entire chapter, probably one of the biggest chapters in my book, devoted to this battle. And I cover each of these sentences like a commentary and, give you, and tell, show how accurate she was and what was really happening with the soldiers. Of course, I don't have time to get into that now. You can read the book. Pacific Press at the ABC this spring, next spring. She went on, The dead and dying were on every side. Both the north and the south suffered severely. The southern men felt the battle and in a little would have been driven back still further. Northern men were rushing on, although the destruction was very great. Just then an angel descended and waved his hand backward. There's the angelic event. Instantly, she said, there was confusion in their ranks. It appeared to the northern men that their armies were retreating when it was not in reality so, and a precipitate retreat commenced. It seemed wonderful to me. You can sense her, her awe at, at seeing this event. Now, of course, the soldiers, they didn't see the angel. This is just something she saw. But what it's, we can do as researchers, what I've done as a researcher, is go back to the historical accounts of the battle, the officer's record of the battle, and the news reports of the battle. And it's very clear, they all report a sudden retreat of the Union Army. When did this happen in the battle? That's where we have to go back and look at the battle. I'll touch some of the highlights for you. So let me give you the background to the battle. The Confederacy had transferred its seat of government from Montgomery, Alabama. That's where the Confederacy was established in Montgomery, Alabama. They moved to Richmond, Virginia in honor of Virginia joining the Confederacy because Virginia had all the wealth, and so they moved the capital of, of the Confederacy to Virginia. So it was Washington versus Richmond during the Civil War. Both sides sought to mobilize men and resources and plot military strategies. The North had to mount an active campaign to force the Confederate states back into the Union. Eventually that meant that the North had to invade the Confederacy. And that's what caused so much bloodshed. It was, that's, you've heard that the Civil War was fought in the backyards and front yards of Americans. Literally, that was true. And that happened at this first battle. The Confederacy had the easier task of countering the North's move. See, the Confederacy, they just had to wait and protect their territory. But the North, they're the ones that had to actively invade them. And so the Confederacy could embed themselves and wait for them to come. And that made it very challenging for the North. And it was such a huge territory as well. But to get to uh, the Richmond, you had to come through a certain place. Any army had to come to a certain place around Manassas, Virginia. Winfield Scott, who was the general-in-chief at the time, at the beginning of the war, advised a carefully executed strategy that would take several years invading the South. Winfield Scott was the only one that captured the concept of a long and lengthy war. He didn't have a vision like Ellen White about it. 
But he realized strategically, if we're going to defeat them, it's going to take a long time. We've got to go and take the whole Mississippi River, and we've got to come and make blockades around the coast, and then we've got to invade the heartland. He envisioned a long, hard, bloody war, very similar to what Ellen White had described. Lincoln was under pressure to make it a quick and decisive blow and end the war. Of course, everybody wanted the war to be over soon. Manassas Junction had attracted the attention of military strategists in both the North and the South. In fact, to get to Richmond, you had to come through Manassas. So the Confederates, they're going to guard Manassas. Lincoln thus sent his forces under the leadership of, leadership of uh, General Irvin McDowell with 35,000 men to Manassas, backed up with Robert Patterson's 18,000 men. The Confederates had Gustav T. Beauregard and Joseph E. Johnston heading their forces, the two leading generals for the Confederacy. Beauregard was the key one. Now here is a map of the battlefield. Now what's interesting is the north, they describe their battles by geographical entities. In this case they called this was the Battle of Bull Run because it was fought by the creek of Bull Run. The Confederates named their battles by the closest city. So for the Confederates it was called the Battle of Manassas. Interestingly, Ellen White called it the Battle at Manassas. And historians have found through research that while it is generally true that they had the different names, the North and the South, for their battles, they were also uh, exchangeable. Uh, they would exchange the names as well. And so you will find some Southerners calling this battle by Bull Run. So Ellen White, evidently that was not an issue for her. She described it as the Battle of Manassas. It was fought in three stages. Um, looking at my time, I, I love these battles, and I may, and if I don't discipline myself, I get carried away and spend the rest of the afternoon on this one battle. But I want to, I'm going to give you a broad overview of all the battles here in a moment, based on a projection Ellen White made. But let me just summarize it here. So what happened? You have uh, McDowell, the Union general, brought his Union forces around Centerville. The Confederates. Now see, Richmond is down here. They had to come through here to get to Richmond. So the Confederates had placed all their forces at different fords or crossings along Bull Run. So they're all here. So McDowell strategizes. He's going to send several, uh, several divisions here as a demonstration while he's going to fake. See, a lot of fakes were a part of, uh, of military strategy back then instead of direct confrontation. So he sent another group back here to connect and suddenly forward and flank them. Flanking maneuvers were key in battles. Instead of going head on, you'd flank them on the left or the right. And if you could turn them and get behind them, then you'd come in and you could defeat them. So McDowell wanted to flank the Confederate force here, flank them on their left, see? But interestingly, Beauregard received intelligence that the Union uh, forces were coming this way, so he thought he would flank them at their left. And if things had gone according to plan, they both would have flanked each other on the left and they would have danced in circles, like a ballerina to the sounds of cannon fire. But that didn't happen because McDowell sent his forces off from here at 2 a.m. in the morning. When Ellen White says they were exhausted when they got into battle, she was right. These guys had been going through all this brush here all night long. Some of them, most of them hadn't slept at all. I mean, would you sleep on the eve of the first battle if you were going to be on the front line? Probably not. And so they left at 2 a.m. The Confederates had been embedded here. And what happened? Things went wrong. They were, uh, their timing was off. And the demonstration didn't go well. And the flanking maneuver here was discovered by some of the Confederates. And so they shifted their forces over here. So here's what happened. About 9 a.m. that morning, they met in battle. There are three hills now. The first hill is called Matthew's Hill. So they met in battle right here. Then later that afternoon, the battle shifted to Henry Hill right here. And then after 4 in the afternoon, the battle ended right here. And all the Union troops had left the field and they ran all the way back to Washington that night with their tail tucked between their legs. It was a major loss. So let's go back and look at what happened. So they battled on this first, first battle in the phase of the battle in the morning till about noon. 
McDowell, the, the Union general, drove the Confederates back and they all fleed across Henry Hill back here. Now during that time, the Union didn't realize it, but you see the railroad here? For the very first time in the history of battles, they transported troops from the Shenandoah Valley up here. So the Confederates had reinforcements. The Union didn't know that. When McDowell ran the troops off the field, he went, rode up and down the lines, Victory is ours! Victory is ours! So he waited several hours. The Confederates were uh, restocking their troops and they lined up along the ridge here on Henry Hill. There was a, a ridge right here with Henry House at the top. It belonged to the Henry family. It was fought in their front and backyard, this battle. And so they lined up along here and then the battle shifted here. McDowell f foolishly waited. That was one of the big problems for Lincoln. He had poor generals in the early part of the war and McDowell was one of them. He should have, if he would have pursued them, he could have taken them into the war right there. But the problem with that is that had, he, had they won, they would have left slavery alone in the South. God would not have that. That's something Ellen White said. Uh, and, and she forecasted the, the battles. So, finally, he took his troops and concentrated them down here along the, the road, and they, he sent troops up in waves attacking the Confederate line. That went on throughout the afternoon, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and they were battling back and forth over cannons, and it was a terrible thing. And then suddenly in this battle, as the Union troops were, were moving up, as they were coming in lines, they dispersed and they retreated. And then McDowell sent some other troops up here because you had Confederates flanking them here. And then he sent uh, several divisions to meet these uh, Confederates up on Chin Ridge, it was called, where it belonged to the Chin family. And they suddenly retreated. So the issue for us is, where did this vision take place? Where did the angel descend? At what phase in the battle did the angel descend? My conclusion is that it took place on Henry Hill. That's where the major retreat commenced. So uh, let me show you a picture. I've been to this battlefield many times. There's Henry Hill. This picture is taken from right here. I was standing facing that way. So uh, that gives you a sense of what uh, the battlefield looks like today. By the way, every major battle in the Civil War, the battlefield is a state park now. You can visit all of these battlefields. You want to do that. Gettysburg is one of the most famous. But this is very interesting to me because it's where this, Ellen White had this vision. I've scoured every inch of this battlefield over the last several years. It's, it, it's fascinating. And we've got some major battles right here in Chattanooga, which I'll tell you about later on this afternoon. The Henry Hill belonged uh, to the Henry family. Now during the battle, shells exploded into the house and Judith Carter Henry was an elderly woman. Her children took her out to get her away from the home and when they went outside, explosions were all around them so they went back in the house, they bunkered down. A shell came in and exploded in her upstairs bedroom and it hit her, it took her foot off and wounded her other parts of her body. She died later that afternoon. Her son ran outside and clinged to the grass and shouted, they've killed her, they've killed her, they've killed my mother. He was thinking, of course, that he blamed, he was a Confederate or the South, so he blamed that, of course, on the Union. But Judith Henry, Carter Henry, Carter Henry is the first uh, casualty, civilian casualty of the Civil War. And here is the, the house has been restored today by the park. Here is the hill. This is where I believe the angelic intervention took place, right in this area, as Union troops were, were charging and you had the Confederates lined on this ridge. It's actually a little steeper when you're, when you're actually there. But that's where I believe it took place. The uh, park headquarters is over here. Also, another event took place at this battle, which is, is well known. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jackson, the most famous Confederate general. Anybody know about Stonewall Jackson? About this story? Okay, great, great story. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when this took place. Some say it was after the, the first phase of the battle on Matthews Hill. Some say it was later of the battle... 
phase of the battle on Henry Hill. But Officer Bernard B., at one point, he saw Jackson standing with his, on his horse with a line of his soldiers up on the ridge. And he pointed to the Virginians. Uh, Jackson was from Virginia, so this is the, his Virginian unit, regiment. And he yelled to his men, There stands Jackson like a stone wall, rallied to the Virginians. And so that's where he got the name Stonewall Jackson. If you go to the park today, you can find a statue with Jackson on his famous little horse. Jackson was a big man. His horse was small. You'd see his legs dangling over the side of the horse. Very interesting. So here is a picture of the battlefield uh, from the, that you get when you go to the park. The pamphlet that they give you. I put this on the screen. And here's the basic narrative from the historians at the park. It's about four in the afternoon. This is when the battle began to end. You had the Confederate line that I've spoken of here. Jackson's uh, division all lined up here and they were continually receiving reinforcements. And you had the Union down at the bottom here and about four in the afternoon, Sherman, who had become famous later in the, in the Civil War, was one of the, the generals at this point and he sent several of his regiments up in lines. And according to the narrative, at that point, the Confederates launched a massive wave against the Union. And it scared them. They used the Confederate, or the, the rebel yell, as they called it. You've heard of the rebel yell? That, that started here at the Battle of First Manassas. I actually believe the rebel yell started at some of the earlier charges, not at this charge. But I've actually heard the rebel yell. Uh, I saw a, a Google video of it was filmed back in the early 20th century where you had some of the elderly Confederate soldiers and they remembered the Confederate, the rebel yell, and they gave an example of the rebel yell. And you want to hear it? It went like this. Imagine 10,000 men at the same time yelling like that. Thousands of men screaming like that. The Union said when they first heard it, it made the hair on their, many soldiers said it made the hair on their necks stand up. It scared them. Later on, the, the Union developed their own uh, as they were charging the battle. They did it differently. They, huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. Imagine thousands of men charging along, huzzah, 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 like that. So very interesting, these, these uh, aspects of the world. That's why people just are in love with the Civil War. That's why I've fallen in love with it. It is so fascinating. So these Union regiments were charging, and they suddenly turned and retreated as the Confederates charged against them. Now, as I've studied all the details of the battle, all the Union, uh, or Union as well as Confederate officer records, and they all, there's a huge set of volumes that uh, describe them. One volume is devoted to this, and I've been through it and read all the testimonies of the officers. They, they were to give their written reports. This is the dominant narrative that you will hear when you talk to the historians there. But there are all a number of testimonies that give other stories. And there's a consensus of testimony that does fit the narrative suggested by Ellen White in what she saw in vision. And that, of course, is the result of the angel coming down and suddenly scaring the troops back. Now, I have a lot of testimony that's in this chapter in the book, but I'm going to give you the testimony of one Confederate colonel who was up on the top of Chin Ridge and he saw this sudden retreat of the Union lines and let him describe it. He didn't see the angel but he saw the results of that. It was W.W. Blackford, Colonel Blackford. Now he was up in this area here. That, this is his perspective. He was in the kind of the cyclorama, battle cyclorama where he could see everything. Now these trees were not, this is a contemporary picture, these trees were not there over 150 plus years ago when this battle was fought. And I have been to this Chin Ridge and it has a commanding view but you can't see because of the trees so I've been there in the winter. And I've climbed the trees where I could see and get a sense of what he saw. And, it, uh, and there are little, if you go to certain angles you can see through the trees and you can see part, at least part of what Blackford must have seen. 
And, you, and, and as I looked at certain angles, you, without those trees, you can see everything that was happening on this battlefield. And here's what he said. He wrote this down years later. He said, It was now about four o'clock, and the battle raged with unbated fury. The lines of blue were unbroken, and their fire as vigorous as ever, while they surged against the solid walls of gray, standing immovable in their front. But now the most extraordinary spectacle I have ever witnessed took place. I have been gazing at the numerous well-formed lines as they move forward to the attack, some 15 or 20,000 strong in view. Now that was a, he overestimated how many there. There was actually no more than about maybe 12,000 on the battlefield. But it looked like that many to him. And for some reason had turned my head in another direction for a moment when someone exclaimed, pointing to the battlefield, look, look. I looked and what a change had taken place in an instant where those well-dressed, well-defined lines with clear spaces between had been steadily pressing forward. The whole field was a confused swarm of men like bees running away as fast as their legs could carry them with all order and organization abandoned. In a moment more, the whole valley was filled with them as far as the eye could reach. And that's what. I, and once this happened, you have all the all the testimonies universal. Once the retreat began, the officers could not control them. They just they were in mass confusion, and they ran off the field. And then the same thing happened when they the other uh, Union regiments went on Chin Ridge. They just suddenly broke up, and they had lost the morale because the retreat had already started. And within thirty minutes, McDowell's entire army was retreating. And they didn't stop. They ran back to Washington. That's a whole story of that retreat back to Washington that night. Thus the panic which touched off the retreat to the Potomac was accounted for by White, but graphically detailed by Blackford. She spied the backward wave of the angelic hand. He sensed the electric effect of it. She proceeded to read into the disastrous salvation from greater destruction, he soon felt bitterly disappointed because the Confederate leaders failed to exploit their victory. That's Lee Usley who did the first major study of this uh, battle of the, the Civil War in Ellen White in his master's thesis. I've, of course, expanded it quite significantly in my study. But his was a good study, and I pulled a lot from it. So what I believe happened here, the Confederate line were waiting they were watching as the Union troops were coming. They were ready for them to clash, and suddenly they, they were dispersed. In fact, I read a lot of Confederate testimonies. They said, how did this happen? Why did they retreat? It was so surprising to them. It was like there was no reason for them to retreat. Ellen White made this interesting statement. She said if, if they had broken through, if they had continued without retreating and broken through this Confederate line, something terrible would have happened. See, they didn't realize it, but there were major Confederate reinforcements, the, divi the divisions of Elsie and Early. They were planning to flank from behind the Union Army here. And that would have been disastrous if they had hit them from behind. If they had broken through this line, if the angel hadn't intervened, they would have broken through this line and they would have probably beaten back the Confederates because they were at the point where that was about to happen. But while they were fighting right here, they would have been flanked from behind and they would have been decimated. The Union Army would have been decimated, which means the Confederates could have won the war. Possibly. Here's what she said. And in this battle, had the Northern Army pushed the battle still further in their fainting, exhausted condition, a far greater struggle and destruction awaited them, which would have caused great triumph in the South. Now, this, never, this did not happen. You don't find this in any of the Civil War history books about this battle because it never happened. But if you read the Confederate plan and strategy for this battle, Beauregard planned specifically for this to happen, but it never materialized because they got away. In fact, a number of them said this was the greatest escape ever in the history of warfare, that they retreated from the field because they knew they were, they were going to hit them from behind. So what happened, these uh, soldiers here clashed with Howard and ran him off the field. That's the third phase of the battle. So that they hit here instead of uh, flanking them from behind. But Ellen White foresaw this. 
In fact, I, I read and I cite this in the book, Beauregard did say, if they had pursued, if they had not left the field in retreat, they would have been totally destroyed because he had planned that flanking maneuver, but it didn't happen. Here's what she said. God would not permit this and send an angel to interfere. The sudden falling back of the northern troops was a mystery to all. You read that in the newspapers. Nobody could figure it out. What, why. And the north was like, what happened to our soldiers? Why would they retreat? Today we would say something like, wimps. But back then they were like, what happened to them? The sudden falling back of the northern troops was a mystery to all. They knew not that God's hand was in the matter. So Ellen White gives a theological interpretation of this battle. That's a basic thesis of my book, is that she gives a major theological interpretation of the Civil War that is valid and fit the events of the war. After describing the angel, here's what she said. And this, folks, this, I believe, is the most significant statement in all of her Civil War writings. Then it was explained that God had this nation in His own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster than He ordained and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in His wisdom He saw fit to punish them for their sins. There is a forecast. But before I talk about that, after the break, God had this nation in His hand. That is the heart of her statements. This greatest crisis of the Union. She said, God has this nation in His hand. That was good news to those Adventists in light of this great loss. Because they thought, what's going to happen? Is the South going to win? Are they going to come up and invade us? God has this nation in His hands. And there's an interesting nuance to that. God had this, when we say God has the world in His hands, we think He's going to preserve it. He's going to protect it. God has this nation in His hands. Well, the preserving aspect of that was true. He would preserve this nation. In fact, He did. This nation is the greatest nation on the earth today because it survived the Civil War. But there's another nuance to that. Having the nation in His hands also meant that He would punish this nation. He would punish it for its sins. In this same chapter, I haven't gotten to those statements yet, but she says God is punishing the North for compromising, for so long compromising with the South, and He's punishing the South for the sin of slavery. So while she said, yes, He has this nation in His hands, He will protect it. He will give it ultimate victory in this war, but He will also punish it as well. So when Ellen White said God has this nation in His hands, she said, yes, He will preserve and protect this nation, but He will also punish it. He will correct it for the sin of slavery. And then she went on to say, notice this, He would not suffer victories to be gained faster than He ordained, would permit no more losses to the northern men than in His wisdom He saw fit to punish them for their sins. So she indicates here a pattern of the Union battles. There would be a... a, a Pattern of wins and a pattern of losses. Now, that's, you find that in any war. World War I, World War II, you've got patterns of wins and patterns of losses, so that's nothing unique or special. But in this case, she says it's related. This pattern of the Union battles would be related to God's punishment on them for the sin of slavery. But in the end, He would preserve them and He would give them ultimate victory. So she forecast a series of ups and downs in the Union battles. And I think I'm going to give you a break now. Let's take a five-minute break and then come back. Those who want to, this is not a class, so you don't have to come back. Uh, but if you want to, and then I'm going to show you the whole picture of the Civil War. I'm going to cover all the major battles. Won't go into as much detail as we did the last one. And show you how this pattern fit. And I'm also going to trace the history of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And how the war changed from a war to save the Union only to a war to end slavery. And after that caught momentum, that's when God gave the Union armies victory. But in the early part of the war, He punished them with great losses. This media was brought to you by Audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.